Welcome everybody to a special edition of our interview series of Two Guys, One Topic. As you know, each week we research a topic, find out the most useful information and share it with you. And as we've said before, we're not experts in the topics that we cover. And what we like to do where possible from time to time is to get somebody maybe just to ask them a few questions that were outstanding from the pod that we did, or maybe somebody who's got some real life experience. Yeah, so this week, this week's pod was all about Mount Everest. And we are super excited to say that tonight, the person joining us was until 2012, the youngest British female climber to have summited Mount Everest. Ladies and gentlemen, joining the Two Guys One Topic podcast interview series tonight is Bonita Norris. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Super excited to talk to you about it and just share with the listeners, picking up on, on what we learned and shared in the pod the other day. So a great place to start, and I'm sure you've been asked it a number of times, is what made you want to climb Everest in the first place? So I was 20 years old. I had never set foot on a snow-covered peak before, climbed anything. And I went to a lecture whilst I was at university at the Royal Geographical Society in London. And it was given by Rob Cassidy and Kenton Cool, who are two quite famous British climbers. And I listened as they described how they climbed Everest, battled through the death zone, and that when they reached the top, they looked down and they could see the curvature of the earth beneath them. And I was sold. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And it was just like this lightning hit me. And I thought, I'm going to do that one day. And I left that lecture theatre just buzzing, full of this dream um, and had to put that into action. And it took two years, um, but I was very lucky at every stage and, and managed to actually do it two years later. Amazing. So going from no plans at all to wanting to do it and then managing to accomplish it within two years. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Going from zero to the summit of Everest in two years, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, <laughs> especially as a 20 year old. Um, but, uh, you know, I was so inspired by what I'd heard and it just clicked. It made sense suddenly to me. Um, so what sort of preparation do you have to do then? In those two years, as you decide you're going to, you know, if I decided I wanted to climb Everest, like what sort of prep do you have to do? Do you have to practice climbing um, or going up other mountains and things like that? Absolutely. And that is the most important thing. You you have to become a competent mountaineer and it's stepping stones. So I had never climbed anything. And when I met Kenton Cole for the first time, he said to me, Benita, like you just work your way back from Everest. So you don't start with Everest, you would, before you get to Everest, go to another of the 8,000 metre peaks, of which there are 14, mm-hmm. um, and climb Chowayu or Manaslu. And then before that, ideally, you would climb something around 7,000 metres, maybe um, Aconcagua, I think that's kind of close. Um, and before that, you would go and climb in the French Alps and the Swiss Alps and Italian Alps on peaks that were around 4,000 metres high. And to get to that, you would climb in Scotland. And to get to, you know, and it just works its way back until you're starting at the indoor climbing wall, looking at like a 10 metre high plastic wall. And it's like, okay, this doesn't feel like it's in any way going to get me to Everest. But when you look at the stepping stones, the the plastic climbing wall does end up with you getting to the top of the world. And And for me, it did. Wow. wow, you must have been just continually climbing for two years then, by the sounds of it, if you were 
going up all of those different heights, those, you know, getting higher and higher with those, with those mountains? I mean, I did turn my life upside down for it. Um, I had to, I was at uni, I was in my final year when I really, when I really got started on it. And um, I had to get a job to pay for all of the traveling that I was doing to Wales and Scotland, like all the equipment, so expensive. Um, and yeah, it completely turned my life upside down. I made a whole new circle of friends. You know, I was I was just climbing most weekends and it was perfect. And I saved my student loan and went on trips out to the Alps when I could. I think I did only two trips to the Alps before I went to the Himalayas. Okay. My version of as I said was like zero to a thousand miles an hour very quickly and I on reflection wouldn't recommend it but it, it worked fantastic wow. so, so I've climbed Pennyvan in Wales <laughs> right. on a school trip I mean Brilliant. where's that get what's next for me then have I got to go to Scotland next or something what's the next one um, I mean, there's higher mountains even in Wales, so you could try you could try Snowdon. And I used to run up Snowdon as training, and I remember being sick on the summit once after running okay. to the top, um, okay. and doing that in all conditions. So you you know you can you can get pretty competent just climbing in Wales if you're in winter yeah, yeah. conditions. Uh, Scotland, they do say that the Himalayas can be training for Scotland because <laughs> oh. Scotland's pretty hardcore. Um, but again, you know, yeah, that's where you'd go and you, you could start training for, um, a Mont Blanc trip today. You know, yeah. there's no reason why you couldn't skip the English stuff and go straight there. You might have a bit of a tough time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do it if you're lucky, if you have good conditions, if you have good support. Um, and in terms of general fitness as well. So is it, so you said you were running, so Liam and I both like to have a run. But is it um, is it other apart from running? So climbing, so forearms and upper body strength. Then it's it's mountain climbing, which is on two legs, um, and you're often not using your hands. Though it's good to to learn how to use them because there are, there are points on Everest where you will need them. But it's mostly these long endurance days where actually your um, your ability to use your kit in every situation that is thrown at you your ability mm-hmm. to understand changing weather understand your own body um that's the stuff that you learn in the mountains so you can yeah. be an amazing rock climber my husband's an incredible rock climber but he doesn't really know a lot about climbing mountains at all whereas okay. i'm an absolute terrible rock climber it's like comparing usain bolt to, to mo farah or an ultra marathon yeah. runner they do different sports almost but it's the same thing yeah a misconception i had was that it's a bit like the film Cliffhanger with Stallone, like you're going up, you're climbing up a sheer face, like climbing up it. But is it is it is it more like a walk up, just a really long walk? Does that it's, make some it's, sense? It's a it's it's the longest walk of your life, um, pretty much. But um, there, it's also incredibly steep. So you are in in places you are really um, having to be careful about your footwork, yeah. and you're using your hands just as kind of pushing off things, you know, moving around rock, like the Geneva Spur and the Hillary Step. Um, and down in the ice wall at the bottom of the mountain, that's where you can be climbing incredibly sort of steep ice walls almost, but often they will have a ladder affixed to it. So yeah. that's kind of straightforward as long as you don't mind the drop. Yeah. For me, I've always, not just on Everest, I know we're talking about Everest today, but as a, as a high altitude climber, being a good rock climber 
in in mountaineering terms um is really important because I know that whatever's coming up on the mountain you know like on k2 for instance I could climb it it was fine I you know but if you focus too much on one skill you're going to have a weakness somewhere else of course now that makes sense so yeah obviously the prep physical prep making sure you're able to climb is super important and we also just uncovered some of the the logistics around getting yourself out there where it is over to Kathmandu um, going over to Lukla organizing your pass getting your equipment to the bottom of the mountain we you know sorting out your Sherpa all of those type of things Mm -hmm. how did you set about doing that did you we spoke about how you could either do things yourself or you can use agencies that are out there ready for you to to then yeah so um i i went through an agency i would say that if you use a reputable one it's the it's the safest and most arguably you i don't know if i'm using the right word here but you could say it was a, a morally correct way of climbing because unfortunately the people that often get into trouble in the mountains are the ones that don't have enough money and try and climb it solo and that's a bigger issue around you know like should you even should should that mountain be that expensive to force people to do that um so there's that bigger problem but I I wanted to go and I wanted to make it as safe as possible for for the sake of my family for the sake of the people I was climbing with so I went with an agency so when we actually arrived in Kathmandu the whole expedition was kind of organized for us and um people get really surprised by that but it's a very commercial mountain you Mm -hmm. literally turn up and uh everything's organized for you you get to the mountain all you've really got to do is is climb and um that's Everest I mean I've had very different experiences in other peaks but that's the way it is there and I would and that's what I would recommend as well for the sake of the Sherpas and for for everyone you're climbing with that's great is it is it all prepared for you because of the Sherpas so are they are they moving kit around and setting up camps and and you know laying down equipment and things like that is that is that why it's all there it's more Yes, it is that. It's more that the fact that the mountain is so commercialised, it's actually really difficult to not be a part of it. Because, for instance, the icefall, um, I can only talk about the south side, which is the side I climbed from. But I think that's something similar perhaps happens on the north, where there are what we have icefall doctors who are really good Sherpas from different teams on the mountain that come back mm-hmm. every year from different agencies. And they come together and all the teams fund them and supply them with equipment. So it's all centralised. It's all organised on a much bigger scale than just one team going up and doing their thing. All the teams work together. So it should be really difficult to kind of go, I'm going to, you know, make my own route. I'm not going to. People have done it like a long time ago, but more so than ever, it's, it's become a mountain where it's owned by the Sherpas pretty much and they do a great job um yeah as far as the, the the climbing then once you get into it we were reading about either siege climbing or rotation climbing and we mm-hmm. were reading how where you then set yourself up and you go to the the next camp and set up your your camp but then you'll then come back down the mountain to try and help your body acclimatize with going so high up going with the altitude effects that happen so you'll mm-hmm. climb high and then sleep low that was what we had read so is, is that is that how it works? 
Yeah, pretty much when I did it, it was siege, it was what you describe as the kind of 50s siege tactics. Though so, um obviously back then the the idea of the siege was that eventually you'd have one or two climbers reach the summit. But with our team, it was always like we all want to, we all are here to reach the summit. There's no kind of yeah. people being sacrificed or anything like that. Um so, but yeah, definitely the the, the science behind it, which um is still followed i don't know if it's the science has changed but um you climb high in the day and then you come back down to rest and your body will rest overnight at a lower altitude and it's quite incredible that you you just don't understand it like how can i top out at seven thousand meters for instance and then come all the way back down in the same day so i've only spent a few hours at seven thousand meters and then i sleep low but i'm acclimatized now to seven thousand meters and yet when you go back there you feel completely different from the first time the human body is incredible like that oh wow okay that's that's something we what sort of how long would you spend um acclimatizing in because obviously on the mountain for like many many days or weeks or months even i guess um so you know what what do you do when you're client do you just sit and wait do you you go up and then you come back down then you like this is what we were discussing and sort of like do you just wait a couple days then go up a bit more so the way it works is you arrive at base camp you've trekked for like eight days i think the trek is to base camp and and i can only again talking about climbing from the south side in nepal so you arrive at base camp, 5,300 meters, mm-hmm. um, and then you're on the mountain pretty much from that point for about a month. But when I say on the mountain, you're at base camp and climbing above base camp. And we would do maybe two trips in the ice fall, just kind of working things out. And then we'd the third time we'd sleep at camp one, and then we'd come back down. And the, sec- the next time we'd go up, we'd sleep at camp two for a day or two, maybe three days depends how good the weather is and then from camp two go up to camp three and then come all the way down to base camp so that's you know in total only about seven or eight days on the mountain and from that point you then wait out for a weather window basically that can take you to the summit and that when that weather window comes you climb over about five days from base camp to the top so in that whole month, there's so much rest at base camp. There's so much resting at the camps on the mountain. It feels so full on when you're actually doing it. But when you look back, yeah. the actual time you spend climbing is, is pretty minimal in comparison to the amount of time you're there. And, and so one, that was one of the things that blew our mind about it, like the, the length of time. And yeah, people listening, they'll remember Liam saying that being a teacher, he'd really need to plan carefully about when he could go not being able to take off, you know, huge chunks of time. Um, and people will be up the mountain now getting ready to do their, their summits um, in early May. But just, you know, how do you, how do you spend the time for a few days? You're just in a tent for a few days at a time at one of your, your, your camps before they're moving on? Is it, is it, is it yeah. sinking in what you're doing? Um, so now I would actually say, especially... Um, Kenton Cool, for instance, is is really pushing, and other mountaineers like um, uh, Adrian um, Ballinger, they try and get the get the team up and down within less than a month. The whole expedition done and dusted in three weeks or something like that. It's kind of fast paced, and and there is there is a lot of I think um, 
there are a lot of voices in the high altitude world now going, are these long, slow siege tactics actually, are they the right thing? Should we actually be doing this a lot faster? Um, I, I'm not. I'm not one to be able to comment on that, but I know that it is being done a lot quicker than, okay. me, than even I, I was doing 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you're at base camp, like, so between the rotations, we call them, that's what, that's what we call them. Um, we will have like two, three, four, five days at base camp, depending on the weather. And in that time at base camp, yeah, there's a lot of monopoly. There's a lot of uh-huh. eating <laughs> cheese in the mess tent and salami. There's a lot of talking absolute rubbish at each other um, <laughs> and reading books. And um, yeah, there's there's a lot of festering. I remember that's what we sort of called it. It felt like you sort of festered because you okay. just, it's, you're at high altitude and it's just, you're not, often we're kind of, not all the time, but often we have coughs or we might be a little bit ill and um, you're just waiting around. And that waiting in some ways can be, really enjoyable but it can also become the, the worst thing after a while because you you start to get worried in your head about what's going to happen next and okay the best thing is when you just start climbing and are there a lot of people waiting there because it you know you mentioned like there's only a small window of opportunity to summit so you know and we've seen you, you see the pictures on social media was it last year or the year before of the people queuing um, because obviously everybody's waited for this window to go up. So mm-hmm. is it just is there like how many people are waiting down at base camp? <sighs> hundreds, um, wow. okay. hundreds of people, Sherpas and, and um, foreigners, and um, yeah, I, it, they, those uh, images. I think there's there's been one or two two years when the images like that have, have come and hit the press, and they are mainly because of I think from my personal opinion um quite bad planning between teams not leaders not coordinating properly okay um and yeah it can if you're going to climb Everest just be really clear with yourself and you, and your the people you're climbing with whether that's the kind of situation you want to end up in for me yeah. don't think so no okay um one of the things that we also spent uh, spent some time talking about was the oxygen deprivation and Mm -hmm. so we were saying that your your body can't survive above the a certain altitude and you're you're actually starting to waste away and your body you know you're putting yourself under under damage effectively by doing it Uh, so I just we just wondered you know did you have any stories about how you dealt with oxygen deprivation Mm -hmm. and how it affected you or your your people you climbed with yeah I mean um, I remember one of my friend saying that he got to the top of Everest and he thought he was in the queue for a bus because he was hallucinating <laughs> from the lack of oxygen wow um I got to the top of Everest and I thought I was in North Wales I thought okay. I'm at the top of Snowdon this is exactly what it looks like at the top of Snowdon because we were kind of in a like a cloud came over us just <laughs> as we arrived so um I I mean I the hallucinations the, the vivid dreams whilst you're awake um are, are something that happens wow. um it's really fascinating. I have never been able to get over the fact, even a few nights ago, I was just lying in bed breathing and like, wow, I can just breathe. Because when you're at extreme altitude, you have to fight for every breath. And after a while, the, the intercostal muscles start to ache in your body. Like, Has your rib cage ever ached just from like 
working so hard for days on end just to breathe. It's like such a weird feeling. Um, so you you really are gasping for air a lot of the time. We put on oxygen at around 7,000, 7,500 metres, like basically okay. when we leave camp three. Um, and that makes a small difference, but we have it on uh, two litres a minute and it's just enough to kind of keep you alive, keep you sane. And yeah, but but saying that, my experience of being in the death zone has changed every time from the first time when it was just what the hell is going on to okay. the most recent time when I, I I looked at my altimeter and I just couldn't believe that we were up there, really up in the death zone, and I felt completely fine. I think, the, the, as I said again, the human body just adapts incredibly well. The other thing that happens at altitude is your stomach shuts down. It's seen as a non-vital organ by your body. Wow. So it cuts off the blood supply, sends all oxygenated blood to your brain. Um, the brain is like the most important thing, obviously. So everything, the body will sacrifice everything else to keep that with a constant blood flow. Okay. And so, you know, frostbite is quite hard to avoid sometimes um, because altitude makes it much worse. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the hallucinations, the hard being hard to breathe and just, yeah, being, being exhausted, trying to put your socks on in the tent. I remember that having to have a break <laughs> between left and right. Wow. Yeah. But we were reading like how, how dangerous it can be and you'd yeah, not wanting to, you'd want to stay as compass as possible when you're that high up a mountain doing something as dangerous as you're doing. So you're not wanting to hallucinate or not really realize where you are. Yeah, that, that must be. Yeah. I mean, and it's only, it only happened actually on Everest. That was the only time I've ever hallucinated. And I've been in the death zone three times. Okay. Um, and one, I was, I was very sharp. The other one, I think I, I got, I got lucky. I didn't really know. It was the first time I was up there before Everest on a different mountain. And I, I, um, I just got lucky with it. But um, Everest, I, I do remember the hallucinations. And, you know, there's only, when you get to the top of Everest, I think there's only 30% of the oxygen that you, that we have compared to what we have at sea level. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're really are close to, to death. I take my hat off to people that climb it without supplemental oxygen. I think it's incredible. Yes. But so- possible, possible. You know, we only, we don't really know the limits of, what we're capable of and then have you pushed that have you have you seen somebody climb it without oxygen do you know like how many people do it is it super rare is it just, um, is it just crazy people just like is it just because they're, they're really trying to like push the envelope or is, is there that a seen as the purest form of reaching it i don't know yeah it it, it definitely oh yeah for sure it's definitely seen as the most pure form of high altitude climbing um uh, and it's something I would love to try, not on Everest, but on a, on a different peak. I have met someone who was attempting it. They didn't manage it that year. They did, I think, the following year. And um, it just really, I think the kind of people that end up doing it and succeeding are the people that just love, you know, they've dedicated their lives to climbing at high altitudes. Yeah. So that it means everything to them. And it really does when you're, when you're going to put yourself in that situation. No, makes sense. Yeah. And I guess reading how dangerous it, it was, Liam, you and I were talking about what we thought might have been clickbait. Yeah, slightly morbid, isn't it? A little bit about the number of um, bodies up there. 
And um, yeah, we saw some, you know, you see some pictures of people climbing or following a path or a trail and there's what appears to be frozen bodies next to the trail. And you mm. think that that can't be real, but then you read about it and it says, you know, there are hundreds of bodies still up Everest. And is that true? I don't know about hundreds, um, but there's two, there's two main climbs up the mountain, which um i did the south side and the north side is is known for like green boots for instance um who's who's a climber that you almost use um, very morbidly as a kind of landmark on the mountain um so you you you, i mean i haven't been there so but this is you know what you hear but um you, you know where you are on the peak when you get to green boots you're at a certain height so he's been there a long time i think wow since the 90s i think i um But on the south side, when I climbed Everest, I actually didn't see a single dead body on that expedition, which is the only expedition that I haven't seen a dead body. Um, it's, it is very common. Yeah. Unbelievable. And- um, you're, you're often, I mean, on, on Mount Manaslu, um, which is also an, an 8,000 metre peak in the Himalayas, it was my first 8,000 meter peak, I was 21, and I remember coming across, literally can't avoid it, it's right there in the middle of the route that you're climbing, it's a mummified body wrapped in a tent that probably got caught in an avalanche, and it's just mummified, and it's right there, and um, you pretty much have to step over it, and then on Everest, I didn't come across that at all on the south side, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very kind of... Again, it, it's not it, it's not really nice to talk about it in this kind of abstract way. But the reason that there aren't any bodies up on ever on the south side of Everest because it's very steep, whereas on the north side where there are lots of bodies, it's quite it's quite it's flat because it's on a ridge. Um, but yeah, seeing them, the worst worst seeing them is is when you have you know that you're coming across someone who's died hours earlier, wow. and that's the hardest thing. That must be yeah. like really sobering and just, you know, bring home, you know, all of your your skills that you need to have and knowing your kit and everything in the conditions that you're up against whilst up the mountain. Yeah, it's um, it's it's one of the worst just to be there and to know that, you know, this this person has got family thousands of miles across the other side of the planet. And, you know, what that family would give to be in my shoes right now. Mm-hmm. being able to stand in front of their loved one and it's me who's never met this person before mm-hmm. and you know it's just it's it's really really hard and for the for the rest of the climb it can be very very sobering um but part of the selfishness of climbing i guess is that you are so driven by the summit that it, it, i'm embarrassed to say it doesn't take that long relatively okay. to move on okay yeah and you you had quite a, a dangerous incident, didn't you, when you were then coming back down the mountain? Yeah, so we got to the summit and we had a great experience up there. Um, and then on the way down, we were kind of boy, buoyed on by, a, is that a word? Uh, by just the excitement of the day and yeah. racing down. And I just picked up a kind of dead piece of rope, which means that it wasn't um, part of the... Well, it wasn't attached to the mountain, basically. It was an old, ragged piece of rope. And I picked it up to do what we call an arm wrap. So a lot of the time on Everest, on any 8,000 meter peak, you will never abseil. You'll never get your figure of eight out because it just takes too long. What you'll do instead is use your arm as a friction and then walk forward down the mountain, kind of like okay. 
SAS guy doing like the, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't know. But anyway, so I would just wrap this rope around my arm and pulled it and uh, fell into the air, um, landed thankfully on the Hillary step rather than thousands of meters below. Wow. Um, but it was, I was pretty bashed up and um, yeah, it took a long time to get down to camp four and I'm here because my teammates basically didn't, you know, were amazing and stuck yeah. with me and, and other people that just came to um, help. And uh, we got back to camp four and the next day I was okay enough to climb down to camp two. And then the day after that, climb down to base camp. So it was a horrible few hours basically. But even when we got back to camp, it still wasn't over. We still had two more days climbing down and I was in a right bad way. Oh, wow. So yeah. we just glossed over something quite important there. <laughs> what was it like being on the top? You just suddenly went, we were climbing up. I went up the top and then you just went, carried on. What happened at the top? What's it like? Um, well, you know, if you've ever climbed a mountain, you probably know what it's like. It's, it's, it, there's just a, maybe a few other people up there. Um, and it's very surreal. Like the, you've been working so hard for this and you get there and you're like, Oh, okay. Uh there's nowhere else to go. We just might as well go back down here. <laughs> um, the, the feeling was relief. It was just this tidal wave of relief that after all the risk and the worry and the, will I make it a lot, you know, out of this mountain alive? Am I wasting my time? Am I, you know, you're driven by such an intuitive feeling to want to climb the mountain. There's nothing tangible about wanting to climb Everest. It's just a gut instinct that drives you on. And so to actually get to the summit, it was just like, oh, I'm so glad I trusted that feeling. Oh. But then it, within 10 minutes, you're turning around and retracing your footsteps down again. Um, and I'm I'm like the same on every peak. I get to the top and I'm just like, right, I want to go. <laughs> I don't want to be here. That was one of the things yeah. I was wondering, like, yeah, how, how long are you up there for? But it is it is only a very short amount of time. Catch your breath and then back back down again. Did you see the curvature of the earth? Did you, did, you know, is, we is that did, you got to see? we did see it, but we saw it more at sunrise when the kind of sunrise was illuminating wow. the, the curvature, this like orange glow on the horizon. And you wow. could just see, it was just stunning. And I, over to the right where the sun was rising over Tibet, um, it was just this beautiful orange light over the Himalayas. And then to my left was the night sky, like these brilliant stars completely dark and splitting night and day in half was the summit of Everest, this beautiful, wow. like pristine glowing mountain. And uh, it was just stunning. So there was, there, there were moments like that, not just on the summit, but the whole summit day was just so special. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, you do just want to leave straight away pretty much because you're only halfway. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like the job's done. Yeah. The only time I've ever enjoyed a summit was, was when I was on the mountain next to Everest a few years later and um, I uh, I just remember calling down to base camp which I've never done before and just saying like you know we're here and I wish you guys could see it and our team at base camp saying like we're right there with you and we, we're you know we're in your hearts and it was just like that was that was the best summit for me it was just sort of sharing it with the base camp team. And when did did it sink in later what you'd achieved by being the youngest British female to summit Everest did it did you realize what you'd done at the time or did you know that you were going to be the youngest British female did you know at the t as you were going up it you know yeah I did because because I um googled everyone who had <laughs> climbed Everest from the UK and uh 
the current youngest British woman at that time was a girl called Tori James. And she was just amazing. Like she didn't know me from Adam, but she met me um, one evening and um, she, you know, gave me loads of advice and she didn't know who I was, but she said to me, one day you will climb Everest and you will take my record. And I just thought that was, she's just like my hero. Um, and uh, she was so supportive in so many ways. And so I knew what I was sort of the mantle that I was taking on. Yeah. Um, so it was quite an honor to, I haven't got the record anymore. I passed, I didn't pass it on. I, it was taken from me by another younger girl, but uh, it was such a pleasure to like pass on that support. Yeah. And and did you did you did it sink in at a later date what you'd done or was it something no, and onto I, the next you thought right I'm going to do something else now? It's never really sunk in because I think when you're when you're actually there you realise that you owe everything to firstly luck plays a huge part of things but secondly um, the Sherpas. The, and, and your your teammates is such a team effort to get to the top. You're such a small cog mm-hmm. in this big machine and of your team um, and other teams on the mountain all working with each other. And it, and you just feel like a very small part of this whole um, expedition. And so even when I came away and my family even said to me when I got home, like, we kind of see you a bit differently now. And I'm like, I'm your daughter. <laughs> so I'm just the same person. And I feel I feel completely humbled by the fact that when you when you climb a mountain like Everest, you're not superhuman. You're no, you know, you're not anything special. You're just a very small part of this big thing. And um, so it's never sunk in in the way that people would expect it to. Wow. Brilliant. Have you got any advice for anyone who's thinking of climbing it? Listening to this, so they've listened to our pod. They thought I might have a go at climbing Everest. They've now listened to to you talking so well about it, and you know how great it is you know have you got any advice to somebody who's listening like maybe in your shoes thinking I'll climb it in a couple of years if if it was someone who had the same like moment as I did or someone who really loves you know is in I would have I would have given anything to climb that mountain it wasn't like a, I'll give it a, I'll give Everest a go it wasn't like a next tick on a bucket list or anything like that it was like I I can't breathe unless I climb this peak. It was an wow. obsession. And and I'd say to those people, um, because you're going to climb it by hook or by crook, I would just say get great support around you um, and don't rush because there's no need. This mountain is always going to be there mm-hmm. and take your time because the more experience you have, the more you're going to enjoy it. Um, and, the, and, you know, to everyone else who's kind of like, it would be a nice tick it would be a nice thing to do. I would say, do you really want to climb Everest? It's really freaking busy. There's a Mm. shitload of people up there. (laughs) Do you want to risk your life to stand in a queue? And there are a lot of people that might go, "Mm, not really. There's plenty of other mountains. I'll go and climb them. There are going to always be those few people that Everest, it has to be Everest. Mm -hmm. And I get that. That was me. But for everyone else, there's shit loads of mountains out there guys (laughs) you know don't stand in a queue um to get your photo on the summit because that is kind of how it is I think from seeing those pictures how it seems to be these days Mm. and you've written a book about it haven't you about the challenge that you went through and your your journey of getting to summit of Everest it's called the girl who climbed Everest I think Mm -hmm. original title a a, a snippet (laughs) of an idea about 
about your your experience but do you just want to let our listeners know about the book as well Sure, thank you. Um, so the book is a memoir. It's um, it talks about how I overcame a, an eating disorder when I was a teenager, and how overcoming that myself um, without any help or outside support. Not that I'd recommend it, but that's what happened to me. Drove me to on from you know basically being rock bottom to climbing to the summit of Everest, but it didn't end with Everest because I fell on the way down as we've talked about Mm -hmm. and that was quite a um, crash to earth and uh, and I then the rest of the book talks about how do you how do you come back from that like near-death experience and I tell the story of how I went then went on to climb another mountain um, called Lotsi which was very cathartic and uh, I described the summit to you already when we radioed down to our base camp team so it's this it's a story about overcoming failure and and going from like rock bottom and trying to like find the light in your life basically yeah and pushing <laughs> yourself beyond your perceived limits yeah but but more just I think the book is about being knowing that everything you need to get out of a a whole a dark time in your life is already right in here and when you're at your lowest point it's an opportunity to do something radical and to tend and to set yourself a challenge to to get you out of this low moment and that's that's kind of what happened twice to me in my life and they're sort of in this book one at the beginning one at the end so yeah read it it's amazing you've answered all the things that was sort of lingering and just us Mm -hmm. wanting to have that first-hand experience of um, somebody who's actually been and done it compared to us researching it and it's yeah it's been fascinating to to speak with you so yeah thank you very much I could sit and listen to stories about this yeah. all day long yeah like. <laughs> oh good because everyone else I know is bored <laughs> <laughs> um no it's been a it's been an absolute pleasure guys I can't wait to hear what you came up with in your your research actually maybe you could tell me what, what, yeah, well, essentially what we've asked you is what we've come up with. Like, you know, the, the sorts of questions we were just, you know, we've, we've gone through. That's what we think it's like. And you've, you know, agreed with some of it, changed some of it, told us it's actually a little bit more like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, everybody knows a little bit more about climbing Everest now. Um, we've shared some knowledge with all the listeners and we thank you massively for that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Benita. No worries. Thank you. Wowzers, how interesting was that then, Ollie? That was fascinating, wasn't it? And I could listen to stories about that from Benita all day long. Incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, some amazing, some amazing information there and some more insights for everybody. So that's that's great. Um, if if anybody knows any other experts or anybody wants to come onto our pod and talk about any of the other topics we've done, um, feel free to hit us up on the socials at Two Guys One Topic. That'd be great. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Share that knowledge. See you later.